0: and welcome to our podcast, Clear as Mud, where we talk to game developers from all walks of life about their personal and professional journeys. I'm your host, Graham Waldrop. As always, our show is presented by Mudstack, the only asset management and collaboration tool custom built for game studios and digital artists. For more information, head over to mudstack.com. On today's show, we welcome Aaron Hamilton-Cook, producer at BioWare. Aaron takes us through how he works with the team and touches on the core events that shaped him as a producer. We then walk through a hypothetical game that I pitch Aaron, and he delves deep into how, as a producer, he would make that game become a reality. If you've been a listener for a while, you know that production is in my background, so whenever we have a producer on, you know, we tend to just get in the weeds a little bit more than maybe I would with uh, you know, an artist or an engineer. Prepare yourself for that a little bit, but this is really fun. And I think you're really going to like what Aaron has to say and learn a heck of a lot about the production discipline. So let's jump straight into our conversation with Aaron. You know, when a producer comes in and sort of forces their will upon a team without taking into consideration the skills or the experience or really thinking about what the product is, they already have their way of doing things. uh, It sort of creates this square peg round hole effect. Uh, It can be really detrimental to a team and the way that they work and it can really affect morale and then your project gets off on a really, really bad start.
1: Yeah, I I think the way I've seen that manifest most frequently is the, uh, I I need you all team members to do things this specific way so that it generates my report that has all the numbers and data and looks the right way. You know, there's some reports that are necessary that you're going to have to have some level of that with. But if, if it's not going to executives, if it's not going to directors, if it's not something that... Uh, other people really need to be informed to make proper decisions, then you're really sort of just slowing things down for the sake of having something that, that either makes you feel good or, or feel like you look good. Um, I feel like that can be a very ego-driven sort of exercise.
0: Yeah, I agree. And one of the interesting things is, is that I would imagine a lot of people think a producer could have a big ego, but that's actually like the one position yeah, I, mean, I think everybody needs to be pretty egoless on a team. But I feel like especially at a, at a production level, when you're keeping track on of everybody and keeping things moving, you really, really can't worry about yourself as much as as the team. Um, because if you do, then yeah, you're really going to set the whole team behind. I think the idea of like generating a good report or getting good results is like insane to me.
1: Yeah, I've, uh, I, I was fortunate to sort of cut my teeth in. in Uh, an environment where uh, I was reporting to this uh, RVP of of game dev and he was very much like, no, this is a meritocracy. What matters is what you, what you and the team get done and accomplish. I don't care how good our our numbers look. I don't care how good our data looks like. I care that we're actually getting content out the door that performs well.
0: Yeah. because I've been in a position where, you know, it was like, you know we were really behind on on sprints and um, or we're doing too much or whatever, and it was like there was so much emphasis on just trying to make those those reports better as opposed to like well what what are we actually producing, um, and yeah yeah no totally agree. Totally agree on that. And so, what what is your process like for for keeping track of different departments? Are you over, over like right now? Are you kind of overseeing you know the entire project? Or are you focusing on a specific discipline, or or how does that work?
1: Yeah, I, I'm cross-discipline in terms of what I oversee. Uh, I'm over one pillar. But I'm not the sole producer on that pillar. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a number of teams that I directly oversee. Uh, we've got uh, an assistant producer on that I delegate tasks to and, and help him uh, develop his career and his skills. And uh, we have conversations around the things that I feel are important, and he raises some great points. And uh, it, it's a it's a whole swath of overseeing technical design, programming like working with animation and animators working with combat designers uh working with level design it's it's full full gamut of disciplines
0: so when you're kind of thinking about that from a pipeline standpoint you're working with team leads and your you know other producers what, what what's that like in terms of setting that up and and making sure like okay we have a process and then how adaptive are you going through iterations and things like that in terms of changing that process if need be to sort of better fit the team.
1: Yeah. I mean, when I'm, when I'm looking at process, I'm looking at who needs what information when and and trying to figure that out. Like, Hey, we're going to, we'll use doors as an example. Doors are in a lot of games. They're always difficult. They're always a challenge. So there's conversations with animation around what, what do you need to know so that we can animate the character correctly as they interact with the door what do you need to know so that uh, we can animate the door correctly? Um, hey, tech design, what do you need to know? When do you need to know it around how, how we set up our uh, like our visual scripting and our, our standards, whether or not this data is persistent or uh, what sort of performance concerns do we have around doors and working with programming and performance teams Uh, working with art to establish the direction around what these doors are and the story that that tells because you've got a door that's pristine and polished versus one that's gritty and grimy like that that's a different sort of narrative beat that you're sort of implying in the environment so there's a lot of yeah it's, it's, it's just figuring out like who needs to know what information when do they need to know it and then figuring out how to daisy chain that in as effective a way as possible so that People feel supported. They feel like they have what they need. They feel like they know the person on either side of them, that they can communicate ahead of time and say, I'm going to need this, or please make sure you include this. And they're going to be able to communicate with the person after them in the chain and say, Hey, here's what I'm doing. Like, does that, does that work for you? Um, And then when it comes to adaptability, I, I typically propose rather than straight up implement, uh, changes in process. So I will I will go to the team and I'll say, perfect example, a couple companies ago, we were working on a project and we were doing story points one way where we were using Fibonacci uh, in, you know, in a very agile sort of uh, environment. And it just wasn't working for one of the team members. They, they just couldn't rock Fibonacci. It just wasn't registering for them. And so I was like, okay, uh, let's do this. I know that like on paper, Agile is supposed to be story points are a measure of effort, not an, a measure of time. But nobody thinks that way on this team. So let's make one point half a day. If you have a task that takes more than 10 points, then we should talk about how we can break that task up. Is, the, is And there were some people that raised some concerns and we worked through that stuff um, and, and adapted things a little bit. But it, it made it a lot easier on the team when we moved away from that so that we didn't have you know, everybody's expecting Fibonacci to look one way, and then there's somebody who is entering like a twelve-point estimate when that's not right on the Fibonacci scale. Yeah,
0: yeah, and it sort of gets to a point, right, where you realize, okay it's gone on long enough. This really isn't working. Like something's we got to change something. I also find though, that, you know, when, when you do make a change though, then you got to be like, then you got to sort of start the evaluation process over and, and think about, you know, is this working now? How are we measuring the results?
1: Yeah. I, I, I have found that like, I've made changes that have just been absolutely bad calls in three weeks. Yeah. In, like there's some, there's some amount of like, I know it's going to be rough, but let's stick with it. And then there's times where you're like, no, this was a bad decision. Let's go back. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, that that was a bad bad choice for me. Um, yeah, you get you gotta be self aware and humble in those moments, and just be honest with the team. That like, hey, I messed up. Let's let's go back to the other thing because I think that was working better for us.
0: Yeah, especially in different stages of development, right? I think I always find that it's 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 tough to kind of measure velocity when you're in kind of like the pre production phase versus the production phase. I feel like things kind of have to change a little bit because. Um, you know, the capacity could potentially increase um, Mm -hmm. for specific tasks and things like that. What do you do to sort of navigate the different stages of development and how you're setting up uh, story point estimates and and things like that and tracking all that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I prefer, if if we can, estimates versus actuals, and I prefer time over story points. Mm. I find that, uh, at at least in my limited experience, uh, agile is a really good tool for a product that exists So it might be good for like an MMO where you're in live ops. Yeah. Um, I have found it to be a less than ideal solution for uh, developing a new product. And so I tend to, if I can, I try to gravitate more towards... Uh, almost a waterfall setup, but understanding that like we're not going to go to the level of doing a BSD or, or WBSD, a work breakdown structure dictionary, where we've got ninety-seven percent of all of the tasks developed and allocated in a perfect timeline planned out. Like we we need to have some level of flexibility around iterating on things and and changing design direction, right? Like we're trying to when we're making a game, we're trying to develop fun. Like what is fun? So you, you need to be a little bit flexible. Uh, about how you approach things because you might you might go down one path and realize like you know what this the way we're doing uh, mobility feels like a slog it doesn't feel fun or it feels too loose and a little bit too slidey Uh, so we need to improve the way we're doing traversal like making every single aspect of a game is to be fun is really hard.
0: I think that's interesting too because I know like waterfall can be perceived as a bad word. Um, in development but i think you know sort of adhering too much to one sort of methodology can be dangerous if you're strictly agile you're strictly waterfall i kind of like sort of like a hybrid methodology mm-hmm. which it sounds like that's sort of what you you try to employ as well
1: yeah i think it's important when you're looking at uh, all these different methodologies that you're really understanding that they're a theory that can be applied in practical application, right? So you need to understand why this theory exists, what it serves to accomplish, what it serves to uh, to do for, for you, for the team, for the product, for the project. And I really prefer to like, once I have that understanding, piecemeal together the best solution from the available options.
0: Yeah, yeah. I found out the hard way when it was just like, we're doing strictly agile and then it just didn't work at all. I was like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. well maybe I need to like, learn more about waterfall and other things and just try to see what works and what doesn't and like something that works well for one team might not work well at all for another i find that it's interesting that you uh you like to do time how do you measure time is that in hours
1: um i do days and i go down to half days okay Uh, as far as like how granular I like to get just because, you know, I'm working on a scale of projects that take years usually. I think the shortest project I've ever worked on was like six months, right? So like, even then it's still granular enough from my perspective. Um, Yeah, I I like to look at, to try and balance scope and capacity. So you have, scope of work, I think is pretty straightforward. This is the amount of work that we've sort of estimated and figured out. And we think this is how long all this will take. And then for capacity, uh, I go through and try to look at each individual And what their capacity is. I assume leads are not going to contribute, that they're going to be in meetings, that they're going to be uh, more or less information brokers. And then, uh, you know, team members need to use the bathroom, they're going to lose time to meetings, they're going to need to grab lunch, stuff like that. So uh, I think my baseline is like folks are usually at 80 to 70% capacity, depending upon how diligent they are, how hard they work, their level uh, of involvement in decision-making and, and consultation and stuff like that. And then it goes lower as they get more involved in, in different types of things. You know, uh, a principal engineer is going to do a lot more consulting. So they might be at 50% capacity, but their ability to deliver is is different than a junior at 70%, right? So right. Um, there, there's a certain amount of balancing there to be made that like, once a task goes to an individual, maybe re-estimating uh, to make sure that, we've got things sort of set the right way. Um, yeah, that's that's how I tend to approach it because because then it becomes very black and white like we have more we have more scope than you have capacity. like we can't do all this without crunching the team so we need to figure out solutions now. or you know we have on paper more capacity than we do scope. we should be in a good position. Let's just keep an eye on it to make sure we're not wrong.
0: And how do you balance out meetings? Um, I've always found that to be such a problem. So there are all these meetings to talk about all this stuff and then, you know, there's not enough time to do the work and that obviously eats into capacity. So how do you you balance out, you know, meetings, particularly with the people that are getting their hands dirty, not necessarily the leads? Yeah, I I
1: think uh, there's a few things you can do to improve things there. Um, Every meeting should have an agenda and and that needs to be in the invite, needs to be iterated at the start of the meeting uh, and, and like communicated that like this is what we're here for. So, that you can stay focused, stay on topic. Um, and if you can, try to end early. Um, there's no reason to stick, re- like, if we've booked 30 minutes, but we've covered everything we need to in 10, let's wrap up now so that people can get back to it, right? There's no that need to. It sounds like the
0: best meeting in the world right there. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I, I've had uh, several of those. They're, they're always really satisfying. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it, I think that's where you start. Uh, and then it becomes sort of a, a tactical decision around understanding who needs to be who needs to be in the room, right? For mm-hmm. consulting, for decision making, for gathering and, and relaying information, and, and whittling it down to just those essential folks. So if somebody, if I'm attending a meeting, I can do the note taking and, and send out, "Hey, this was the decision that we made. This is the things that were discussed. Here's why we're going this direction." I, I don't need uh, an IC there to gather information so that they're aware as to what we're going to move on. They just need to know when that they should be getting that information so that they're not, you know, moving ahead too quickly. Uh, if somebody's there to consult, then they need to understand that, like, they're not part of the decision process, that they should just be informing people as to the risks and concerns and, uh, the, the various, uh, rats nests of, of code and, and different types of things that you might end up with if you go down that particular direction like hey just so you know this could be a problem and here's why and, and i think there's a there's a difference between uh finding a solution and and identifying a problem making sure that you can hey you know what that's a, that is a problem we're going to discuss that offline uh to figure out how we solution that so i mean w- when we've got tools like slack and email and stuff like that it's really easy to take uh some of these conversations offline and and have asynchronous collaboration to find solutions.
0: At least for me with the sort of the asynchronous stuff, I find that works better, especially when you you have kind of that team dynamic built out and everybody feels good working with each other. I always get concerned when I'm doing something like that with the team I don't know well yet. Just, I don't know, it's just it's just one of those things where it's just like, I like to make sure we're all on the same page. And I feel like sometimes things can get lost in communication with, with Slack or email um, or any other sort of form of communication like that. Um, you you feel similarly about that, or are you kind of more uh, hands off? I guess in that respect.
1: Yeah, I, I do. I do see that occur on occasion um, when it is obvious that there's a sort of a misalignment in communication. That like one person is saying things one way, somebody's saying things another way. I'll sort of just ask probing questions, like, "Hey, yeah, I, I understand we want to tackle things in this way. Is that because we have this concern?" And then they'll correct me and be like, no, 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 we need to do it this way for this reason. Okay. Uh, and this is a problem. Why? And like, just trying to, because I'm a producer, I'm not the technical person. I can ask the the dumb questions uh, and nobody will bat an eye. But if you're, if you're a programmer and you're talking to a tech designer, you might feel self-conscious about asking some sort of technical thing that like you're supposed to know. Right. And so I, I find that that's one way that I concerned the team well is just jumping in and asking Uh, what other people would view as dumb questions because nobody's going to expect the producer to ever know any of this stuff.
0: Yeah. 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 So, there are a couple of things you said there, I really liked, especially with, you know, having an agenda for the meeting. Don't just have people show up and be like, well, what are we talking about? And then you got to spend 10 minutes figuring that out. Um, Have the appropriate people there. Um, I've always found also like, you know, when you're reviewing sort of design documents or, or concepts, uh, or whatever, even for like a prototype, if like there's a way to get that out before the meeting so everyone can have their thoughts ready Mm -hmm. pointed to me. And then that saves a a heck of a lot of time too.
1: Yeah. Or uh, another thing that I found is very successful is having delegates. So like, Mm -hmm. hey, we can't have this review without this critical stakeholder. It's like, well, let's reach out to that critical stakeholder and, and see like, is there somebody you trust to make this decision on your behalf? Uh, and having that person show up instead so that people have a little bit more freedom to to focus on higher level things if they can't make it to to reviews and stuff.
0: Yeah. Well, one of the things we were talking about before we started recording, which I definitely want to touch on is, um, you know, you've been doing this for, for a minute here. So what what are some things that have changed about your approach uh, from when you started to where you are now and, and maybe what events have occurred that sort of influenced that change?
1: So when I first entered the discipline of production, I thought I need to be the person with the answers. And, uh, I need to be the person who makes decisions and I need to frame things in a way that makes me look good. So the team feels confident in me. And those were, those are bad things, by the way, those are not ways to be an effective producer. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so I learned to, to let go of like being the person that the team believes in because, I withheld that we moved a date, and the team got everything done early, and and then I come in, and I'm like, hey, we have two extra weeks, so if you want to polish that up, like, you know, you've got some extra time. Like, I learned that that's sort of abusive from somebody else uh, that I was working with who was coaching and mentoring me at the time, and uh, jumped in and gave some information about how some dates had moved, and I was like, wait, what? But, but why would we do that? Like, now they're going to take the extra time, and and he, ex- you know, explained to me like, well, it's important that they know what the reality is of it uh you know we're we're not providing undue pressure on the team like it mm-hmm. it's not to say that we don't want to put pressure on the team but we don't want to put unnecessary pressure on the team right um and there's a difference between like pressure and uh i don't know how you frame what, what the antithesis would be like what the the sort of toxic version of pressure is uh maybe, maybe it'd be better to say there's a difference between creating a tense and intense environment, right? Like you can have pressure in an intense environment, but in a tense environment, it's just creating like conflict. And then learning that I don't have to be the one with the answers came down to like how often I didn't have the answers and just, okay, well, let me go find out. And then figuring out that really, I just need to make sure that the team gets the answers they need. It doesn't have to come from me. I don't have to have them ahead of time. There there was one project I was on where I had, I felt I had to be the one to make the decision as to whether or not we went with some sort of uh, technical solution. And I made a bad call. Um, There there were a lot of uh, VPs and, and the like in that meeting. And I had learned after the fact that there's nothing wrong with saying, you know what? I hear like, this is great information. Let me take this back to the team and consult with them and figure out what the best solution is, right? Like that'll take me five minutes after this meeting to get that answer. That's, that should be no big deal. Yeah. There's a level of self-awareness you sort of have to have in this industry uh, so that you can continue to grow and develop. Otherwise, you're just going to keep making the same mistakes.
0: Yeah, you're exactly right. It's like, it is kind of crazy when you're like, oh man, I really don't know. And then I've actually had the same thing happen before uh, to me where someone's, sort of coming to me for like, well, we need this. And like, when can we have it? And you feel like, oh, I just got to be able to tell them when we can have it. Like I'll, I'll talk to the team later. Like I should know. And then you just put everybody behind the eight ball when you do something like that.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: So, you know, we can't really get, uh, too much in the weeds on what you're working on now, but I, I think what we've been doing is sort of having people come on from different disciplines and talking about like a, uh, you know, if we were to make a hypothetical game, if we're starting out with prototypes, how are you approaching? How are you approaching this? How are we approaching this this game? So it's sort of like, you know, if I were to pitch you an idea for a game, you could tell me, OK, this is, you know, and I can say like this, is the team size, this is the uh, you yeah, know, this is the, the style of the game. Uh, you know, we can sort of start to do a little exercise in terms of how we would plan this game out. Uh, wh- one game that I've always wanted to make that I've never been able to. So it's a game very much like in the style of, of flower if you're familiar with flower. Yeah. I love, uh,
1: is that, that game company?
0: Yeah. That game company. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but it's kind of similar to, in that, in that, uh, you play, but you play as a turtle. It's like a baby turtle. Mm
1: -hmm. You,
0: you're, you're, you're born, uh, you crawl out of the egg and this, into the, onto the beach, you have to get into the water. There are predators out there. There are, you know, seagulls, uh, pelicans, crabs, et cetera. You got to get into the ocean. And it's sort of like this mad, frenetic dash into the ocean. And then once you get in there, um, it's sort of this this life and then subsequently the death of this turtle. And you sort of follow it throughout its life. And you're just going through the ocean. And you're having to deal with predators. You're having to deal with pollution. You're having to deal with um, eating, surviving And it's sort of just this, uh, sort of isolated journey through the life of a turtle. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I always thought that'd be kind of a cool, cool idea, but it was always one of those things where, um, I always wanted to be pretty realistic, you know, require like really good animation. Uh, and then obviously dealing with water, being in water the whole time is a pain in the ass to deal with as well from a development standpoint. So I never really like got off the ground, but I was like talking about it. Who knows, maybe someday I'll come back to it. But if you're if you're coming on board to work on something like that, where do you start in terms of like, um, you know, if, you know we've hired a team. We have, a, I don't know, let's say we have, let's say, you know, we're independent. Let's say we have like a 40 person team or something like that. Um, where are we starting with, with this project? What are, how are we kicking off sort of the pre-production process?
1: Yeah, I like to start with risks. Um, so let's go through and identify what I, I like to call them rakes. Like, hey, what are the what are the different rakes that we could step on? And then once we figure those out, let's develop some mitigation strategies before we ever uh, start typing up any code or anything like that. Like, hey, we, we could, you know, because if, if you're saying realistic art style that has its own challenges, like, how do we avoid uncanny valley? How do we make sure we get uh, specularity and ray tracing and all these, all these other things to work correctly and to still maintain performance. Mm-hmm. So there's some risks there. Uh, character morphing would be a risk, right? How do we accomplish that? How do we make sure that we can get uh, the growth and development and the life cycle of a turtle where things sort of stretch naturally over time in a way that, isn't obvious to the player once we've got an idea of like hey these are these are our huge risks uh then let's start developing tech demos and prototypes and different things that address those directly and and once you've got all the big scary stuff out of the way a lot of the rest of it should be really straightforward and then it just comes down to the team executing yeah. Um, it, now you can't always do that because sometimes you have different obligations and you need to have a certain level at a certain degree of polish and development that you send to the publishers so that uh, you can get your second round of funding or or additional time or, or some kind of thing. But yeah, that's where I tend to like to start is is looking at those things uh, and then you know developing swim lanes, roadmaps, figuring out when we expect stuff to happen, but leaving. I like to leave a good two months in pre-production if I, if I can. Depends on the, the, the timeline, right? But it just time for the team to really poke around at the edges of this design and, and try to find holes in the design and uh, try to make sure that we get on the other side of any sort of major technical risk that would prevent us from being able to execute.
0: So when you see these tech demos and prototypes, based on the results, right? Do your risks change? Like, let's say like we, you know, we thought about this one risk uh, in terms of performance, but something else that happened in the demo or the prototype is causing other performance issues we didn't anticipate. What is that? What would that do?
1: Yeah. I mean, the design, nothing is set and forget, right? Like you, yeah, it's all maintained and updated. And that, I think that's why solutions like Confluence are really strong in the industry is because a lot of people can hop in and collaborate all at once. And uh, you can have sort of living documentation. I, th- I think you have to go through and update stuff as you go. Um, yeah. You know, like, I've worked on, I've worked on projects where like something happens in the world because some game released and has this new trend that like, well, that's the new hotness. We have to include that in some way, or there was some sort of disaster that happened in this environment. And, uh, we need to be conscious of that in how we represent this character, so that we aren't inadvertently making commentary on it, or making things worse, or uh, alienating people, or something like that. So there's, you know, you're always going to have things that that adjust your your plans and your schedule and your strategy. Like you, you have to make those your, your systems for tracking how you move forward as nimble and as as adaptable as possible.
0: Yeah, I think especially when you're. Talking about like we've got this uh, you know prototype that we're feeling good about, but then we actually start to work on the game, then it's like how does that change? You know, figuring out also like uh, you know when we want to hit deadlines. Is also something that becomes can become kind of scary, especially if things aren't going as fast as you thought, or you're not finding the fun as fast as you thought. Then it's like, okay, well, how does that change when we're expecting to deliver this part of the game, and how does that affect you know everything else uh, that comes after? Yeah, totally.
1: The, the The one thing that I like about your design is that it doesn't involve a license IP, so we're free yeah. to do we're free to do <laughs> anything you, you want. want.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you don't have to really worry about any uh, clearances or, or really any legal issues, um, <laughs> as far as I know. Um, and I think, you know, one of the challenges about it, something, uh, a game like this also is, is pacing right? Because the ocean is a is a vast place and where a turtle can go. I think that's one of the things that's always kind of been scary about this, this idea to me is sort of developing how pacing works. Is the game open world? Are we kind of keeping ourselves or do we have an illusion that we can go in an open world, but not really? Uh, How do you keep something like this fun and engaging? Yeah. Um, Well, yeah. What would be your kind of thought process when you're, if you were like, you know, working with someone on this game who is kind of like, you know, creative lead or whatever, um, and being like, all right, so how are we finding the fun here from just a pacing standpoint?
1: Yeah. I would look at other other games that are similar. So Abzu immediately comes to mind um, and how they sort of did their pacing. Uh, I I would want to look at what's the story we want to tell. How can we drop beats for that story throughout when we have what would otherwise be like a dull. I mean, this doesn't sound like it would have much combat or not a, at least traditional combat, but like if, we, no. if we've got some sort of moment like that, you know, if we're, if we're in a moment that lacks tension, how can we deliver narrative either through the environment or through, I don't know, turtle visions or something, right? Like, yeah, uh, you know, f- figuring out those sorts of things, I think would be uh, essential to making sure that there's still a sense of Forward momentum, pun intended, allowing that to ebb and flow.
0: Yeah, that was one of the things uh, that I really appreciated about Journey. Was you know you see the mountain immediately, mm-hmm. you know that's where you need to go, but how you get there and what you do on the way, the pace you go at is kind of um, up to you to a degree, uh, unless you get into sort of a conflict area, because like that would be one of the things I would be really interested in. Also, is is like being able to explore, being able to kind of enjoy this sort of movement. Um, really making the movement feel feel really good. Um, but also then once you kind of figure that out, then it's like, all right, now we're kind of getting into more of the conflict of the game. What's happening? How are you surviving? How are you avoiding being killed, uh, et cetera?
1: I don't know. There's a variety of games where uh, flight is, is the main method of traversal. Like mm-hmm. there's, there's a handful of games where you turn into like an owl or an eagle or something like that, I think. Because it's still that sort of similar. You have a lot of freedom in your directionality of movement, right? And you, you could sort of look at uh, what they've done successfully, what you don't like about those systems that you have the skill set on the team to improve upon. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's, there's going to be a, a certain degree of competitive analysis there just to figure out what's been done before, what's worked well so that you can sort of develop solutions. Traversal I think would be if you can make just swimming around really fun, that, that alone could make for a great experience.
0: Yeah, that'd be a, that's a huge win for sure. If you can make that work. What about from the technical and art side of things? Um, really making the water seem realistic, making, you know, tons of different fish, coral, things like that. Um, what kind of process goes into that? Would that be something where you'd say, like, uh, we want to you know, research uh, places in the world or, you know, also do some competitive analysis there? Yeah, I think I think there's
1: some opportunities to do some competitive analysis there. The first thing that comes to mind is fluid dynamics and getting good simulations for that at scale so that you can figure out jet streams and things like that. So that uh, those could be gaming mechanics for, for like fast transit between locations where you can hop into this sort of jet stream and get a speed boost and be able to travel further. If, if you're going open world or not, it, it works both ways, right? There, there would be a lot of considerations around draw distance for me, um, you know, because if you're in an yeah. open ocean environment, like how do you make sure that you're creating an experience that feels good in terms of not having too much pop in, having things properly fade in? uh i would want to do a little bit of research into how turtles actually see and is there a fun thing that we can do with that uh from a game design standpoint because uh, that might affect depth of field and and draw distance and yeah uh, or even other
0: senses too
1: yeah yeah I, I think it would be worth exploring because in this sort of type of game you're you're looking at like Dealing with sharks and different types of predators and so uh diving into how you manage detection radiuses and uh what that looks like and do you want to have ocean current be a factor that influences that there's a lot to figure out actually from an audio standpoint um yeah there's a handful of, of folks that have done some great work in underwater environments tom todia uh worked on some game where uh I think I think it's called maneater you play as a shark and you hunt divers uh, who are like looking for buried treasure and or or maybe you can play as either the shark or the diver I don't know there's some some balance there but there's a lot to like figure out to make all of that sound right because it's very much the sort of thing where it doesn't matter how it sounds in the real world it matters if that experience that you're hearing aligns with your expectation
0: yeah that's a good point. And it just how, how sound works underwater.
1: Mm-hmm. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a huge, huge thing. I and mean, then I guess, you know, once you get into sort of production on it and you've sort of figure out like, I, I never really uh, imagined it being a super long game, probably like five or six hours, honestly. Cause like, how, how can you keep that interesting? Right. I think at least that's, that's good news there for, for anyone who would work on it. It wouldn't be really long. I'd rather have a shorter, really good experience than a longer kind of bloated experience. Mm-hmm. Um, especially for something where it is kind of a, a simple idea where there probably wouldn't be a ton of mechanics, um, where it is kind of like uh, a little more avant-garde kind of style game.
1: That is, that is another challenge of pacing. Like, cause you do want to figure out, okay, if this is our investment, this needs to be our price point because we think we're going to sell this many copies and, and, you know, figuring out those kinds of things on the, on an indie scale, uh, can be a bit of a challenge because if, if you set your price point at, at a certain level, people won't buy it, uh, or people will buy it, but there's always an expectation that like if I buy a $20 game versus a $60 game uh, about how much of an experience I'm going to get, uh, Right, which I, I do I do find to be a false dichotomy, but that's that's sort of the reality of uh, a fair number of players out there, right? So it is it is something that needs to be considered.
0: It is yeah, it's definitely something to keep in mind. I think that's also something that people who make any, not all people, but there are some people who make any games that don't really take the time to be like, all right, these are, direct comparisons to our game. Uh, these are the sales results. This is what we think we can do because there's a market for this. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one of the ways you can really figure out should you make this game mm-hmm. is, is starting at that point. Yeah, and I, I
1: think, you know, the thing you're talking about, there's definitely a market for it. There's, mm-hmm. um, I, I can think of a handful of indie examples. Now, I, I, I can't think of any that are photo real. I think uh, there is a cost associated with that that has yeah has lent itself towards indie games being more stylized. Um, I, I do think there's an additional freedom uh, for artists that come when you uh, approach uh, a stylized sort of look and feel uh, as far as like the art direction for the game. It does make things more expensive, more more uh, intricate in terms of how you approach things.
0: Yeah. And it's one of those things, too, where it, it's like if someone could come up with an idea for an art style that wasn't too like cartoony. But was, or it didn't have to be too realistic either, but could make things a lot easier to develop where I could be like, yeah, that makes sense. Like mm-hmm. also, especially if that saves us money and it's still can deliver on the experience I'd want, then, you know, it would be one of those things where I'd be like, yeah, all right. Yeah. Let's, let's see it. Um, and see if that would work.
1: Yeah. I imagine there's, there's some opportunities there too to get some funding from like, if you, if you make the focus of the game, uh, ocean conservancy, there's a number mm-hmm. of nonprofits that I, I would think would want to throw some some money behind it so that you're not entirely beholden to the direction of a publisher and and stuff like that
0: yeah yeah definitely so when you start getting into full-blown production at this point what are things that you are monitoring what are you know potentially like uh what warning signs are you looking for when, when you're working on something or are, are you kind of like just sort of even keeled? Like I'm always like, that's sort of one of my things is I'm always being like, I'm looking for things that could possibly be going wrong as opposed to, I mean, I'm still acknowledging the things that are going right, but I'm also really trying to key in on those things that could go wrong or are going wrong. So I can fix those as fast as I can.
1: Yeah. I like to keep an open perspective, if that makes sense. So I'm looking, I'm sort of looking at everything, and deciding how I should evaluate it. I think the most important thing I'm paying attention to is workload, right? Like looking at how much people have on their plate. Am I am I overloading people in a way that is setting them up for failure? Or am I loading them up to a degree that is is a challenge and allows them an opportunity to grow? And is that challenge appropriate for, for where they're at in their career um, and, and in their professional development. Um, I, I try to, as, as often as I can, make sure that the folks in my team have opportunities for growth. Uh, and so there's a lot of discussions, you know, when we're, you're going to plan for the next sprint or milestone or however you're dividing up your schedule, um, talking through these are the things that need to happen Uh, that leaves us this much room for things that we want to happen of the things that we need to have happening. Like, do I have any volunteers for these things? Right? Like, is there something that somebody really wants to take on? And then, okay, we have this other stuff, like, you know, we've got about this much extra room. It seems like you individuals have, uh, some additional capacity. Is there anything you want to take on? Or do you just want to pull off the top of the stack and like, okay, well, this was, is what's going to need to happen next milestone. Um, giving that sort of agency, uh, and trying to make sure that I'm reinforcing that, I think is important. The other thing I really try to pay attention to is how much time people are putting in. And and that's not to say that, like, you have to put in 40 hours of work or else, right? Like, I I just want to make sure that people are not crunching because I've planned poorly or because they want to do that to themselves because some, there are some people who are, you know, they feel the need to take on a lot and do a lot. And, uh, I, I, I try to make sure that folks aren't burning themselves out. Yeah. As far as, as far as data that I pay attention to though, mm-hmm. uh, estimates versus actuals, um, you know, are we estimating things correctly? Like after a few milestones, you can get an idea of like, you know what, we have not, we didn't do good estimates. We need to go back and reestimate the whole backlog um and hopefully we're better this time uh and then the other thing is scope versus capacity so do do i have more work in the backlog than i have team to deliver it i
0: think that's such a important thing especially at those first few milestones being able to look at it and say okay are we really delivering or are we not and if we're not we need to just stop and and figure it out mm-hmm. and, and and really think about what do we need to do to make these estimates and then the actuals i like how you how you put that estimates versus actuals? What do what do you think about an uh, in, internal playtesting uh, versus external playtesting? I always feel like internal playtest needs to happen a ton. When when should external playtesting start becoming a factor?
1: Um, well, there's different types of external playtesting, right? So there's the friends and family, especially on the indie scale, there's friends and family, right? But uh, you have sort of professional playtesting where you are working with uh, maybe other developers, other other people who can put on quote-unquote dev goggles. Um, you've got public playtests, you've got closed betas, you have uh, working with uh, research groups and having them do playtesting where they're you know, employing a bit of biometrics and data science and, and are able to give you some very explicit insights that you maybe can't get otherwise. Um, so I, I think there, there is certainly a timeliness. I think if you're going to go the route of using... Uh, human factors engineers and user experience researchers and uh, th- those sorts of disciplines. If you want to employ those for external playtesting, it needs to be, you-, you need to go in with a, a certain thing that you have uncertainty around, right? So you need to say, you know what, we're, we're very confident on our art direction. We're very confident on this. If we get feedback, great. The thing we don't know about is traversal. Um, we want to know that this turtle uh, it's fun when you're swimming around, right? And so as soon as you have the thing that you're uncertain of stood up and you, you're you getting mixed results in internal playtesting, that's when I think it's worth going that route. Uh, when you have more of an alpha build and you can represent the whole of the experience, I think that's when it's good to sort of get into your uh, external playtest with people who can wear dev goggles, where they can understand uh, sort of the direction things are headed in and the kinds of decisions that have been made that have yet to really be fully fleshed out so that they can sort of comment and say like it looks like you're going in this direction if you are great if you're not do this thing or it looks like you're going in this direction i think that's probably a misstep i think i would advise maybe doing this instead um, there's there's a certain amount of uh, sticking to your guns when you get certain feedback and understanding that thank you for your feedback, but that's not the game we're making or right. Uh, but also being humble uh, enough to acknowledge where people have given you really valuable insight that you, it, it is an incredible opportunity to to improve in that capacity of the game. So um, yeah, the friends and family stuff. And, and when you get into like public external playtesting, that's really your, you have a, a polished experience, um, that, that people can go in on. Like, I think Elden Ring, when they did their server playtest, where it was really about just uploading, uh, getting a lot of people on the servers at the same time so that they could sort of stress test mm-hmm. uh, how, how multiplayer might work, making sure people could connect easily, because that's been a, a weak point for them in past games. Um, I think they did a really good job of focusing it on in on we've really fleshed out limb we've really you know got a good direction on the art here there's not a lot of buggy things in the design in this area we, we are confident in in how this looks and how this plays and it does represent a larger uh sort of game loop throughout the game and we can get insightful information on how players like to approach different things how they like to engage with each other in combat uh, the way that they explore all that kind of stuff
0: yeah i love that idea about having a goal when you're coming to the, to getting external feedback. I think there's also value in just saying, play the game and see what happens. But I think having sort of a goal and thinking about, all right, we really need to look for this and look for feedback on this. Or like you said, what from software did with Elden Ring. I mean, I think that's, it's kind of simple, right. To yeah. think about, but a lot of people don't do that.
1: Yeah, And, and you don't even need to necessarily tell, tell your play testers, this is what no. we're looking for. No, I, you, I should actually but you should in know
0: internally. Yeah. 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 You should know internally. I, I think one of the biggest mistakes I made, uh, especially at school was, all right, this is our game. This is how it works. This is what you should be looking for. And then it's like, oh, well, they're just here to play the game, man. Mm-hmm. If you're trying to do that, then it's like, well, you're trying to compensate for shitty design or you're not confident in your design. Maybe it's not shitty, but yeah, um, yeah. that, that's something I hope people learn really fast or never do. Somebody was doing that to me at uh, a at GDC earlier this year. And I was like, this is really not helping
1: you know, yeah, think, you think every little thing to me. I, I think there could be a time and a place for it. Um, yeah, it, especially when you're doing sort of more of the human factors focused research, where you've got at the end of this play test, we're going to ask you these sorts of questions. So please consider oh, those things throughout. Right? Like, there's, there's, right? Uh, there are ways to approach that, but I do think, yeah, um, if you're going in and telling people what they're supposed to experience, uh, you're, you're going to get some pretty biased results in your data.
0: Yeah yeah no totally and then they're not going to find the fun themselves and then anything that where they could have found it won't feel like that to them they won't enjoy it as much Mm -hmm. so when do you start knowing that we're in a position maybe where we can start saying we're close to being finished
1: i I have never actually felt that i have known Mm. we as a team have something great that we need to bring up to quality but the quality bar is a moving target because of the other games that come out and uh, publisher expectations can change. And there's so it, like, it's a, uh, it's, it's interesting from that point. It, it's, it's usually like I, the, the adage that I like to say is no game ships, hundred percent finished. If, if you were to go back and ask the team, like, what would you have done to, if you had like another six months, what would you have done on the project? They'll give you a whole list of all these things they would have liked to do and then you're like, okay, what about a year? That list is just going to grow, right? Like there, there's always more you could do to take a project further. Um, you, you sort of have to figure out when done enough is, right? Like we're, we're comfortable with this shipping at this quality, but this other thing needs to be at a higher quality. Um, yeah, so fi- figuring out what's what sort of those uh, targets are and aiming for those, I think is, really all you can do and understanding that you've only got so much time
0: yeah that makes sense well thanks for uh participating in that that hypothetical that was cool Sure. yeah um i guess sort of the sort of close us out um you know the producing discipline is not something that's really as sought after seemingly by a lot of students or by people trying to get their foot in the door if someone is out there looking to get into production what advice would you give them in terms of where maybe the positions they should look for and then who you know once again the door who should they start maybe uh shadowing things like that um just just any any advice that you have for for anyone wants to get into the discipline
1: yeah I, i would say um production is a little bit unique in that we sort of take people from any industry So if you're interested in being a game producer, getting any experience as a project manager is valuable. Um, So whether that's being uh, a business analyst at uh, some banking software company or being a project coordinator at a construction company, like any, any sort of project management experience you can accrue is going to be valuable. Because at the end of the day, right, like the same principles apply, like on time, under budget, um, good team morale, good team cohesion, uh, efficiency, like all those kinds of things like are going to apply across the the whole gamut of different types of project management. I, I sort of Think of things in terms of rather than hard and soft skills, you have technical, conceptual, and human skills. You're going to need to develop some some level of like emotional intelligence so that you're good at the human skills. You're going to need to develop uh, self awareness and learn how to regulate your own emotions so that you can you know be the calm in the storm, as it were. And, and like you're going to have to develop your human skills no matter what if you want to advance as a producer, as a project manager, regardless of industry. Um, You're going to need to develop technical skills around project management uh, regardless of industry if you want to be in production, right? So uh, focusing on those and and building up uh, those skills and and that knowledge base I think is good. Uh, The conceptual skills, the like sort of understanding uh, how design influences production decisions, understanding how uh, you're going to choose to establish your processes and, uh, what sort of tools you have for intervention, like the, the sort of higher level stuff like that, that'll come with time in the discipline. Um, those, you know, strong conceptual skills are really important at like senior producer and above. If you're an associate, like that's, it doesn't need to be on your radar at all. It's, it's, I think it's good to be aware of that, that, that is an opportunity for you to grow in that area. But I, I don't think that you need to be too concerned with uh, not actively developing those skills uh, as as you're going along. Um, Yeah. And and I've seen people come from uh, construction, from oil, from banking, from uh, simulation software, like the whole range of different types of project managers uh, I've worked with as fellow producers.
0: Yeah. Cool. Well, Aaron, thanks a lot for coming on the show today and uh, definitely appreciate you're in sight and um, anything you want to plug? We always like to give people an opportunity to plug things at the end. Uh, if you want to do so, feel free.
1: Sure. Uh, Dragon Age Wolf, keep, keep an eye out on the announcements and all that. Um, I don't have a release date that I can communicate at this time, but uh, keep an eye out. We, we are working on it. We did hit alpha, uh, so the game will be coming at some point. Uh, and the team's working really hard, and I can't wait for players to get their hands on it. It's going to be a great experience
0: awesome yeah i think uh everyone's dragon age fans looking forward to that one uh big time so best of luck on on, on finishing development on that and uh, look forward to playing it yeah thank you All right, that's going to wrap up our show for this week. We want to thank Aaron again for being our guest. To find out more about Mudstack, head over to mudstack.com, where you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and join our community on Discord. And of course, we want to thank you for listening. We'll see you next time on Clear as Mud.